It is so good to listen to a whole bunch of voices singing Christmas carols. I've been doing it in my car by myself, and uh, it doesn't sound good. I'm going to be honest. Uh, my voice is terrible, and as you can hear, it's I've lost it too, not from singing, but uh, being sick a couple weeks ago. But uh, I just love getting into the Christmas season because it is just such an exciting time to remember that heaven came down to earth, that God came to live amongst his people. And so when we enter into this Advent season, uh, we get excited here as a church because we just love the fact that we have a whole season in our church calendar dedicated towards preparing our heart, living with expectancy to fully celebrate. I mean, we're always celebrating Christmas each and every week, each and every day as followers of Jesus. But when we come to this season, uh, it is uh, a special one and it's an excellent opportunity for us to celebrate together. And celebrating Christmas has been something that has really just grown in my heart and in my life for a long time. And there's just so many good Christmas traditions. One of my Christmas traditions growing up uh, was reading some stories. Every year as my family would set up uh, around the living room, uh, my parents would put out a series of books that we would read. And one of uh, the ones that became one of my favorites is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And uh, every year I would sit down somewhere uh, to devour this book once again, this little short story, because it's just a captivating tale. And I know I'm not alone in that, because the fact is, this, since this book was first published in December of 1843, uh, when it first sold out of its first 6,000 copies, it has never stopped being in print. It has been continually published ever since that time. And not only has it been published all that time, but it's also been turned into all sorts of different things. Plays, uh, films, I mean over 30 Hollywood films dedicated to this story, operas, all sorts of other expressions of art built around this captivating story. And so like me, many of you probably are quite familiar, and I'm, I'm banking on that a little bit today because I'm going to reference it, but whether it's because you've read the book, you've seen uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol or Muppet's Christmas Carol or Bill Murray's maybe less than classic Scrooged, uh, you probably know the story. You're probably familiar, but in case you've forgotten, I just want to give you a little bit of a taste of what it's all about and then... Uh, why I'm setting it up this way is because I think we'll see that there's some connections with a story that we read about in scripture. But we have this guy, his name's Ebenezer Scrooge, and he is a crusty, bitter, greedy old man. And he runs this business, his partners just died, he has some, a worker named Bob Cratchit, and he is just the grumpiest guy. But he's the center of our story. And then we have all these side figures. We have old Jacob Marley, his old business partner. We have his clerk, uh, Bob Cratchit. And Bob has a young son who is a boy with some special needs named Tiny Tim. And then there's some other great characters as well. There's four ghosts or spirits that we read about in the story. We have the spirit of Jacob Marley, but then we have the spirits of uh, the Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. And each of these figures comes and visits old Scrooge one night so that they can help shake him awake to the reality of where his life is leading him. And in the end, what's incredible is a story leads to a place of redemption at Christmas time. 
Now, hopefully that wasn't a spoiler. The book has been out for 180 years. So get over it if I just ruined it for you. But if you don't know it, please go home tonight and commit yourself to a Muppets Christmas Carol. You will not be disappointed. But the reason I bring this story up isn't just because it's a great Christmas tradition, but it's one of the places my mind goes when I read this passage of scripture that we're going to look at today. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, looking at verses 13 to 31. So if you got your Bible, I'd love for you to join me there. If you don't, we'll have the words up on the screen. But as you're turning there, let me tell you why we're going there. This isn't sort of a, a, a traditional Christmas text, you know. Normally if we were coming into Advent season, we'd focus on maybe Luke chapters you know, one and two, and telling the Christmas story. Maybe we'd look for the four weeks of Advent at four famous figures, or perhaps the four Christmas songs that we have in the Bible. But, but this year, I want to come to this place because I think we're all out of room. I think for a lot of us, we're at this place in our lives where we're just filled up. You know, did anyone feel busy? It's just me. Anyone feel worn out? Does anyone feel like not just what's going on personally, but what's going on economically and socially and politically has just filled you up to here with a whole bunch of things? I think that's where a lot of people are. I think we're just full. And there's actually no room. There's no room to celebrate Christmas. There's no room to be in a place of expectation and excitement about the fact that we're celebrating a story that we've celebrated for 2,000 years. We kind of are at this place where we're like, man, I, I'm just too busy running around. I just got too much going on. I just can't even stop to think about it. I can't get my lights up. I can't get my tree out. I can't, I can't, I can't. Just too much. Or I'm fed up. I'm fed up, fed up. I don't want to get together with my family because I know we're just going to fight. I don't want to get together with, with my friends because so-and-so and so-and-so are on different sides of an issue and they're just going to go or maybe we're just in this place where we're like, man, if there's one more interest rate hike, I don't know how I'm going to pay. I don't know how I'm going to buy my kids or my grandkids Christmas gifts. How am I going to do it? We're full. We're full. But the shame with that is that all that that's filling us up and taking all the space in our interior rooms is that it robs us. It robs us of the joy that we can find in Jesus during this Christmas season. It robs us of a sense of hope, what we celebrate today on first Advent morning and peace, joy, and love, which we'll celebrate over the coming weeks. And today's story is a story from Scripture is a story that, that Jesus told first and foremost, to a, a strange anonymous man that we never have met before and we don't meet after. But then he tells a couple other little illustrations to his followers to help them to understand some of the things that fill up our lives. And he causes us to question, question what's really filling our hearts. Is it really giving us what we need that really only he can provide? So if you're coming to a place of no bandwidth, of no time, of no patience, of no room this Christmas season. I hope that as we journey through this series of no room, that you'll be able to hear, not just a value, uh, to bring you to an evaluative point, but that you would hear and know the person of God. And so this is sort of setting us all up 
towards celebrating the fact that Jesus came down to earth to live, to teach, to die, to rise again so that we could have a relationship with a God who wants to fill us up with all the good things. So let's start today by looking at what I would consider the Bible's very own Scrooge story told in Luke chapter 12. Follow along with me starting in verse 13. It says someone in the crowd, so there's Jesus is gathering, he's been teaching, he's been doing all this, and out of the side of the room, I don't know, some guy walks in and says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all these crops. So then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. So take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus turns. We don't know what the time frame is here, but I like to think he moves straight over to his disciples. And he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about all the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your father, he knows that you need them. But instead, seek first his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. I love this passage of scripture because there's these sort of two moments that get woven into one. Jesus takes two opportunities to teach and bring his followers to a place of learning to receive from him. They learn to receive from him instead of worrying about what they have on their own. The first opportunity we see, of course, is is Jesus coming into the midst of a family conflict. In verse 13, we have this moment where this anonymous man comes out of the crowd and he comes up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I want you to help me out. Now to us, this seems really weird. This seems like sort of a a strange thing. Why would you go up to some random dude talking in a synagogue and and be like, hey, Jesus, I want you to figure out my inheritance. Well, in Jesus' day, this was actually not that uncommon. In Jesus' culture, it was totally normal for someone who was going through a debate with family to go to a rabbi or a teacher of the religious law and and come to them for some clarity and for some direction and perhaps for some regulation or redirection that has to do with the Jewish law. 
And the inheritances that the people would have received in those days would have been connected to some of the religious laws that had been passed down through generations. Now, this man is presumably a younger brother, a younger sibling somehow. And we, we know from this context that his, his dad's passed away. And culturally what happens is when dad passes away, there's a, a portioning out of the estate. But the oldest brother always gets a double portion. And so we assume this guy isn't the older brother because he's not complaining that he got a double portion. We see that he's going, hey, Jesus, I don't like this. This doesn't seem right. My dad loved me too, yet this guy gets a double portion and I over here get whatever is left over. Or maybe there's other brothers too, we don't know. But he says, Jesus, you got to take this wrong and write it. Jesus, help me out here. Help me get half of the estate. You say you love people. You say you want to provide for people I'm not getting provided for. Help me out here, Jesus. Now, there is something Jesus could do. Jesus, as a rabbi, could come in and arbitrate and deal with the family estate. But what Jesus does instead is he speaks to the man's heart. He confronts the underlying motivation that's taking part, that's filling up the room in this man's heart and mind so that he can't think of anything else. And we've seen this. Anyone who's ever been around a family who's fought about family money has unfortunately witnessed that sometimes the worst part of us fills us up and pushes everything out, relationships, God, and many other things. And so Jesus, he wants to address this and he wants to speak into their life. And so in verse 16 to 21, we see that he tells them a story. He creates this parable of sorts to help people to think, or this man specifically to think about what goes on. And so he tells the story of this wealthy man who builds up his agricultural empire and gets to this point where his barns are full and he, he doesn't have enough room for everything else. And he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to build a bigger farm. I'm going to build a bigger barn. And then I'm going to have everything else I could possibly need. And I'm just going to kick back and relax and enjoy. It's all going to be for me. And so that's what he does. He goes tears down his barns and builds up new ones and gets his workers to haul everything into the barn. And one night he kicks back. I just picture him on, on the deck looking out over the farm. There's the bright new bread barn. He's got his glass of wine and he thinks, yes, I got it. Little does he know though that that very night God's going to call him, boom, your life's over. This is it. Now is the end of your road. And this leads Jesus to say, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. I think another way we can think about that when we're thinking of room, this is how it will be for everybody who fills up their own lives with the things they can communicate, accumulate rather than making room for God. In this moment, Jesus gives a bit of a prophetic warning to this young man. He says, this is the track that you're on if you allow yourself to be consumed with the wrong thing. In the midst of Jesus' teachings, in the verses before, we see that he's giving some warnings and encouragement. He's saying, you're missing out receiving the life-giving truth I'm trying to give you because you're singular in focus. In a sense, he's like the ghost of Christmas yet to come in the Scrooge story. If you remember the Christmas carol, you remember that as the three spirits come and visit uh, 
Ebenezer Scrooge. They all take him to different places, their visions of seeing what his story is, what it was, and where it will take him. And then in this final scene with the final spirit, the spirit of Christmas yet to come, he gets teleported through a number of different rooms and then ultimately out to the graveside where he comes to a place of his tomb. But he finds out that not only will there be death for him, but his death will ultimately lead towards the death of another little boy named Tiny Tim. In this story, what's trying to happen is the Spirit's trying to reveal to Scrooge that there needs to be a change. Likewise, in an even more powerful way, Jesus wants people to hear him. Don't fill your life so full of things that will leave you with a sense of false security. Fill yourself up with the things of God. Be rich towards God so you can receive more of him. Jesus goes on and teaches this many other times throughout scriptures. Pour yourself out so you can be filled with me. Otherwise, you just work and worry for little to no reward that you will never be able to take with you. That's why right before he gave the story in verse 15, Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, there's a good warning here for for greed, and you and I may or may not struggle with that, but I think there's a bigger understanding uh, that we can take out of this. He says, watch out, be on your guards against all kind of greed, not just money. I think what Jesus is ultimately giving us is what I heard one pastor call a warning not to use the wrong ingredients. Every one of us wants to experience a good life. And every one of us is trying to figure out how we can put together a recipe to make sure that happens. We're trying to cook up the best life we can, aren't we? And we try to take a little bit of this and a dash of that and a good slab of that and we try to put it all together and and rub the spices right and set the right temperatures. Also, we hope at the end of the day we're going to have a good life. But the problem is, you and I, when left to our own devices, screw it up every time. If we haven't got the wrong ingredients, we add them wrong. If we don't add them wrong, we probably over or under season. Have you ever had a meal that's over or under seasoned? Have you ever had something where there was a substitute that just really shouldn't have taken place? Hello, Brussels sprouts and kale. Why are they in anything? I don't know. Amy likes to joke with me about, there was this one time, I was so proud, I love to cook, um, but when we were first married, uh, I really wanted to uh, sort of branch out, and I'd never really done like a really fancy like soup, and I know that sounds weird, but that was sort of what, the kick I was on, and so I had this uh, picture of this beautiful Greek soup, and I was going to serve it like we were in a fancy restaurant, and I had this whole plan to deep fry these feta balls, to be like a mozzarella stick sort of thing, but feta, it's going to be so perfect, and we had, I had this fresh made pita that we were going to dip in, oh, it's going to be so good, but the problem was, I screwed up one inclusion, I had everything perfect, the broth, oh, it was just awesome, the, the, the meat was cooked tenderly. The vegetables were perfect. But the rice, the rice I didn't account for doing properly. If you don't do rice properly in soup, you know what happens? It absorbs all the broth. 
and it becomes no longer a soup, but a sludge. And so I had spent an entire day while Amy was at work perfecting this recipe only to throw the rice in at the end and it was trash. That night for dinner, we had fried feta and pita because the soup was so bad that we could not even eat it. The right ingredients even added in the wrong way can lead us to all sorts of disaster. For this man who came to Jesus, he wasn't seeking something that was necessarily wrong in and of itself. We all need money to get by. We all need possessions to a degree to ensure we have some level of security. But this man, he became so fixated on the wealth and the possessions and how it was to be distributed that it began to fill up his life and he blocked out everything else that could be life-giving, including the teachings of Jesus. He was there in the room as Jesus had been speaking. If you look in your Bible just leading up to this, you'll see if you've got a red-level Bible, how much red is written around this. Jesus is doing tons of talking, and the only thing this guy can think is about one thing. He doesn't have room. There's no room for Jesus, and Jesus warns him, you're going to miss out. This is going to lead you to emptiness and death, if you don't take time to prepare the rooms. I want you to think about this description of Ebenezer Scrooge from the opening section of A Christmas Carol. It says, Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, that Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and he spoke out shrewdly in a grating voice, probably like I sound now. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He goes on and says he carries his own low temperature about him wherever he goes. He iced his office in the dog days of winter and he didn't thaw it out even one degree at Christmas, we read part of that interaction with Bob Cratchit. It says external heat and cold actually had no influence on Scrooge. He had no room for it to penetrate in. No warmth could warm. No wintry weather could chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer to him than he. No falling snow more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain could even enlist an entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. Though heavy rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast advantage, he didn't respect it. They came down handsomely, but Scrooge never did. Do you see yourself in Scrooge? Do you see yourself in the parable that Jesus spoke? Many of us have no problems in seeing the connection between Scrooge and the parable of the rich man. Oh, it makes sense. But we fail to see ourselves in the story. We fail to enter in to allow these literary characters to speak to us. Dickens and Jesus both spoke for dramatic effect. You might not feel exactly like Scrooge because the winter weather affects you. Maybe you're not as rich. You might not feel like the rich man because you're not in that economic 
uh, place. But that's not really what Dickens or Jesus were trying to do. They were trying to get you to see some parallel to some part of your life. They're exaggerated for effect. They're given to you to cause you to ask the question, could that type of darkness exist somewhere within my heart? Could my rooms be so full too, just like these men? Could I be missing out on what Christmas is about? Could I be missing out on what a life worth living looks like? Am I headed towards ruin? These are the questions that we're supposed to ask. My hope as we go into the Advent season is you ask yourself the questions, am I using the ingredients that God has given me in the right measure? God's given lots of great things, but anyone we take and own as an idol will end up leading us to ruin. Am I aware? Are you even aware of what the ingredients are? Are you aware of what your idols are? Do you know what's gripping your heart? Do you know the things that are shoving Jesus out of your heart, mind, and soul? These are the questions that Jesus wanted us to ask. And so Jesus spoke to this man, and I believe Luke included it because he wanted us to understand because many of us would, would struggle with wealth and that sort of thing. But he goes on from that place just so we don't get hung up on the money. He turns and talks to his disciples about another ingredient that a lot of us had, which will ruin everything, which is worry. That's why in verse 22, we have this story where Jesus says, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't go about anything, but God still provides. Who of you can worry, or who of you can add something to your life? worrying none of you so why do you keep doing it look at the fields they have beautiful flowers that god gave they didn't have to work for that but god's good and so he'll provide even for something that will die so quickly like grass in the middle east if god's willing to do that for ravens and he's willing to put lilies in a field how much more will he care for you so instead of worrying about what you're going to fill up your life with Instead, seek his kingdom. And more than what you could have added on your own will be given to you. And then you'll receive the gifts of hope, peace, joy, and love. You'll receive more of the fullness of his presence in your life as you allow these things to take place. You see, Jesus spoke about worry after finance because, yes, the two are related, but it helps us to sort of extrapolate this, our understanding it's easy for us to go, yes, I'm worried about that next interest rate bump that might make it more difficult for me to pay my mortgage. We might be wondering, is that nest egg I saved going to be enough to carry me through the rest of my retirement? We might be worried about those financial things. It's easy for us to get there, but we need to go deeper again. What about all those other things? Where am I going to end up? What does this look like to live a life well-lived? And not just a life that I've scraped on by worrying through all the rest. There's so much worry. So much worry. Worry is an epidemic. Anxiety is an epidemic in our society. And so Jesus wants to speak to you because he wants you to know the truth. That worry, that anxiety, that thing that you allow to fill in all your room is dangerous. I can be a worrier. 
for sure. I can for sure be a worrier. I often think through all the worst case scenarios of all sorts of things. It's part of what makes me great at my job. But the problem is, is that sometimes when I get in that mind and then I allow it to consume me, it fills up every room. What's interesting when we worry is the world doesn't expand. The horizon doesn't get any bigger. But our world actually starts to narrow and we get more focused. That man who was worried about money, what happened, his focus shrunk in to one thing. And for you, it may or may not be your finance. It might be something else. But as you allow that worry to consume, that's exactly what it'll do. It'll fill up every room. And so Jesus wants us to come to this understanding. He wants us to know that he is the one who provides, and he can. I can provide everything for you. Look at what I do. I do it for the ravens. I love that in verse uh, 24. It says, look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food, but God still feeds, feeds them. Aren't you more valuable? Now, in their society, ravens were considered awful, wretched animals. They have looked down on ravens in Jewish culture. For us, it would be like, look at the rats on South Fraser Way. God takes care of them too. I don't know why, but he does. But this is this idea, right? If God's even going to provide food for the rats that run down the gutter on South Fraser Way, how much more is he going to provide for you? You're so much more valuable. He cares so much more for you. And so he'll provide. Jesus is saying, look at the flowers. God made them too. Why? Fields don't really deserve it. And think about a Middle Eastern field. Grass doesn't last a really long time. It's going to die. But God's still so gracious to allow those fields when they're in bloom to look beautiful. God wants you to hear the sermon he's speaking to you. I love, I, I've written down this quote because I heard Francis Chan once speak on this passage and he, wrote, he said this. He said, every day a sermon is being preached to you saying God provides and God sustains. That's what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to remind us to look beyond ourselves, beyond our worry, beyond the things that are filling up our room to see God. And he's preaching this story. He's giving a message of hope all over the place. Whether it's the ravens or the rats or the lilies, he wants to speak to you. And that's the beauty of Advent. That's actually why I get so excited entering into this season because this is a season, a season that's another sermon to you. It's another opportunity to hear about the goodness and provision of God. As we come into the Advent season, we see the ultimate provision of God for me and you. That God would come from heaven down to earth. That he would live a life so perfectly that he would be able to be our substitute in death because we've all fallen short of the mark. We've all filled up our rooms and in that we've gone against God and we've led ourselves on a path of death and destruction but God came down to heaven, from heaven to earth to deal with that too. And so he died on the cross in our place as a perfect substitute so that when he rose three days later, we could enter into a relationship with the God who provides and sustains everything. Ravens, the rats, and the lilies too. And he has done all of that 
so that we can make room. So that we can make room to be in relationship with him because he loves us that much. The reason our church name is Emmanuel is because it means God with us. We sing those Christmas carols. Oh, come Emmanuel, right? That, that line is written through many carols because we celebrate that God is with us. Not just that he was a God that walked upon the earth, but that he's a God in relationship with us. But in order to do that, we have to make room. For those of us who are hopeless, you've screwed up on the ingredients. You've come to this place where you're like, I've got nothing left. You're like the man who's got the full storehouse and he comes to the moment of his death. You need to hear the story of Advent today. God loves you. He knows everything that you've tried has led you to a dead end. And he has come to make room for you. Because you can't do it on your own. You've already mixed all the wrong ingredients. But he says, I can redeem the soup that you call your life. I've died for you. I've risen for you. So that if you would trust me, if you would surrender everything in your rooms and allow me to fill you up, to be present with you, that I can bring you the hope that can only be found in me. God's presence counteracts the wrong thing that we fill our lives with. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I would encourage you over the next number of weeks, as we carry forward towards Christmas, continually go back to him. Whether it's singing a Christmas carol in the car, and not just singing it, but thinking about the truth of the message that God has come to earth to live and die for you. Whether it's you go back and read the Christmas story in one of the Gospels and just wrestle with the truth that God came from heaven to earth for you. Receive that message. Read through the teachings of Jesus. Allow him to speak the truth about the things that you need to get out of the way so that he can bring more life-giving fullness to you. This is a, our challenge this Advent. And it really will be disruptive. Our world is full. Our lives are full. This will take good intention. But I think if we can take the time, we'll be able to prepare ourselves to experience the fullness that only God can bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the truth of who you are. We thank you that you are a God who, who doesn't leave us our, to our own devices, but you come into the room. Lord, we thank you that you lived and died, that you went to the cross as a sacrifice for us. And God, we want you to get all the praise, all the glory, all the honor for that. But Lord God, I pray that in the midst of all that, we would not lose sight. We wouldn't lose sight of the truth that we need to do some work. That we need to make some room for you. And God, I pray that in this Advent season, as we work towards that, that we would be filled with the hope, the love, the joy, and the peace that only you can bring. God, would we as a church be a hopeful people this week? Would we be a people who are so passionate about the hope that we celebrate like no one else in our community, that we would make so much time for it, that we'd be so transformed by it, 
that other people would take notice to. So Lord God, we give ourselves to you. We ask you to accomplish something we can't accomplish on our own. Take our lives, redeem them, make them right with you. We thank you that you are willing to work with us in that. And we pray in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.